1892, William Osler wrote of a disorder characterized by the passage of mucousy diarrhea and intestinal sand in patients with otherwise normal colonic epithelium. He described the patients as hysterical, hypochondriacs, or depressed, and suffering from severe colicky abdominal pain. He called the condition mucus colitis. For decades, very little was known about the disease with many physicians citing an irritable bowel as the visceral expression of an underlying psychiatric condition. Over the past decade, research in the interactions between the gut-brain axis has greatly increased our physiologic understanding of irritable bowel syndrome as one of the most common gastrointestinal disorders affecting about 5% of the population. It can have a significant impact on quality of life, with symptoms such as bloating, abdominal pain, and alterations in bowel habits with constipation and or diarrhea. Today, our patient has irritable bowel syndrome and you are the doctor. Welcome to The Internet Work, a podcast written by internal medicine residents meant to serve you better on the wards and on call. Today's episode is entitled Happy Gut, Happy Mind, an approach to irritable bowel syndrome. All right, time for a minute physiology. Irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, is considered a disorder of the gut-brain interaction. The gut-brain access is a bidirectional communication between the central and enteric nervous system, linking central processes such as cognition, pain perception, and emotion with the functions of the intestine, such as gastrointestinal motility, secretion, and sensation. The central nervous system responds to external triggers such as stress. These external triggers prompt pathways in the hypothalamic-pituitary-adrenal axis and limbic system to release cortisol from the adrenal glands, which then directly acts on intestinal targets. In high-stress states, excess cortisol secretion can alter gastrointestinal function. The central nervous system also communicates along afferent and efferent autonomic pathways with intestinal targets such as the enteric nervous system, muscle layers, and gut microbiome. With regards to intestinal factors, visceral hypersensitivity, altered motility, and dysbiosis all play a role in IBS. Visceral hypersensitivity, or increased sensation in response to stimuli, results from stimulation of various receptors in the gut wall and can be triggered by bowel distension or bloating. Altered motility is also frequently observed in patients with IBS and may be triggered by post-infectious and inflammatory states. Finally, dysbiosis is the alteration in gut microbiome that disrupts microbiota homeostasis and metabolic activities of the intestinal microflora. Dysbiosis can be triggered by inflammatory status, such as inflammatory bowel disease, antibiotic use in the setting of recent gastrointestinal infection, or in individuals with food intolerances. All right, so now that we've talked about the basic physiology, let's talk about the approach. The differential diagnosis for IBS is broad and dependent on the change in bowel habits. In individuals with diarrhea-predominant symptoms, important causes of chronic diarrhea such as celiac disease, microscopic colitis, medication side effects, and inflammatory bowel disease should be considered. Constipation may be secondary to other causes such as obstruction, medication such as opiates, psychiatric disorders such as anorexia nervosa, or metabolic disorders such as diabetes mellitus. While most patients with IBS will be seen in an outpatient setting, 
The most important first step is to ensure patient stability by reviewing their ABCs and vitals. A review of alarm symptoms is also pertinent to identify which patients may require further workup by way of endoscopy and to assist with patient triaging in the inpatient setting. Alarm features include unintentional weight loss, greater than 5% in three months, signs or symptoms of gastrointestinal bleeding, including hematochesia, hematemesis, melina stools, or a bright red blood parectum, onset of symptoms after the age of 50, nocturnal symptoms, and a family history of colorectal cancer in first-degree relatives or a family history of inflammatory bowel disease. A clinical diagnosis of IBS requires the fulfillment of symptom-based diagnostic criteria and a limited evaluation to exclude potential other underlying diseases. The current recommended diagnostic criteria for IBS are the Rome 4 criteria, which defines IBS as recurrent abdominal pain greater than one day per week for greater than three months, associated with two or more of the following, related to defecation, associated with a change in the frequency of stool, or associated with a change in the form of stool. IBS is divided into three main subtypes based on stool consistency. Constipation predominant, or IBSC, includes individuals who have greater than 25% hard stools and less than 25% loose stools. Diarrhea predominant, or IBSD, includes individuals who have greater than 25% loose stools and less than 25% hard stools. Finally, mixed bowel habits, or IBSM, includes individuals who have greater than 25% loose stools and greater than 25% hard stools. A detailed history and physical examination should be performed to assess for other conditions that can mimic IBS. A careful medication history should also be obtained to identify any culprit that could be causing GI side effects. A characteristic feature to elicit on history is relief of abdominal discomfort after a bowel movement or an association with a change in stool form or frequency. A thorough history about bowel dysfunction should include questions about the frequency of bowel movements, fecal urgency, altered stool form, hard or lumpy or loose or watery, sense of or incomplete evacuation, straining with stool passage, and the passage of mucus. A Bristol stool form scale may be used to elicit details about the form of stool. Questions to ask your patient about pain include location, timing and onset, aggravating and alleviating factors, changes in pain with bowel movements, and whether pain is associated with a change in stool frequency or stool form. IBS also correlates with other pain syndromes, so symptoms such as dysuria, widespread musculoskeletal pain, dysmenorrhea, fatigue, anxiety, and headaches may also be present. The physical examination is usually normal in patients with IBS. However, Patients may have mild abdominal tenderness to palpation. A rectal examination may be useful, particularly in assessing those with chronic constipation, to determine if structural or functional anorectal disorders, such as dyssynergic defecation, are at play. On to our workup. There is no definitive diagnostic laboratory test for IBS. The purpose of laboratory testing is primarily to exclude an alternative diagnosis. A CBC ferritin calcium 
and serological testing to exclude celiac disease is recommended for all patients with suspected IBS. Celiac serology includes anti-TTG and IgA testing and requires patients to be on a gluten diet for six to eight weeks prior to testing. In patients with diarrhea predominant symptoms, stool testing may also be appropriate, which includes stool cultures and sensitivity, C. difficile testing, and stool ova and parasites to rule infectious etiologies. These patients should also be screened for recent travel to endemic areas. Of note, the Canadian Association of Gastroenterology recommends against testing for CRP and fecal calprotectin to exclude inflammatory disorders, while the American and British guidelines do suggest testing for inflammatory disorders. While these investigations remain somewhat controversial, the rationale in the Canadian guidelines is to limit the use of invasive and costly testing when a working diagnosis of IBS is already suspected. Additionally, colonoscopy is recommended for individuals over the age of 50 with new IBS symptoms or if other red flag symptoms are present in order to rule out alternative causes and malignancy. Let's talk about treatment. Lifestyle and dietary modifications are first-line management strategies for any patients with IBS. Diet, exercise, stress reduction, and if appropriate, psychological counseling may be beneficial. Screening for underlying anxiety or mood disorders is also important, as patients may have refractory symptoms if underlying mental health issues are not addressed. With respect to diet, identifying foods that may act as triggers through a food journal or a referral to dietitian may be helpful for some patients. Diets high in processed foods, fatty foods, caffeine, sugar alcohols, alcohol, insoluble fibers, and cruciferous vegetables can increase IBS symptoms. In particular, randomized control trials have shown good evidence for low FODMAP diets for two to six weeks with concurrent dietary education provided by a trained dietitian to identify trigger foods. Patients are also recommended to maintain adequate soluble fiber and fluid intake. Soluble fibers include oats, barley, fruits, and seeds, and help to absorb water in the intestine to thicken stool and stimulate peristalsis. Pharmacotherapy is generally reserved for patients with symptoms that impact a patient's quality of life, or those who do not adequately respond to lifestyle and dietary interventions. Specific pharmacotherapy can be tailored to IBS subtype. The goal of pharmacologic therapy is not only to target stool consistency and frequency, but to lessen the impact of visceral hypersensitivity. Tricyclic antidepressants and SNRIs are both good treatment options to target visceral hypersensitivity. Probiotics may help regulate the intestinal microbiome, but there is a lack of quality evidence to guide their use. To improve stool consistency in those with diarrhea, consider bulking agents such as Fiber 4 and anti-diarrheal medications such as loperamide. Conversely, laxatives such as PEG-3350 may assist in improving stool consistency in those with IBS-C. The newest generation of medications for IBS target both stool consistency and hypersensitivity and have randomized control trial evidence behind them. These include eluxodoline, an opioid receptor agonist antagonist helpful for IBSD, and linaclotide or placanotide, both of which are guanylate cyclase C agonists and can be helpful in IBSD. 
Time for a Medicine Minute. The Relief Phase 4 study published in the American Journal of Gastroenterology in 2019 randomized patients with IBSD who had inadequate symptom control with loperamide to receive either aloxidoline or placebo for 12 weeks. Patients recorded their worst abdominal pain and stool consistency throughout the trial period. The primary endpoint was the proportion of composite responders, which was defined as patients who demonstrated greater than 40% improvement in worst abdominal pain and less than 5 on the Bristol Stool Scale Score for at least 50% of treatment days. The study found that there was a statistically significant improvement in the composite responder endpoint in those using elexidoline. It is hopeful that ongoing studies will find more treatments for patients with IBS. Thank you for listening to today's episode entitled Happy Gut, Happy Mind, an approach to irritable bowel syndrome. This episode was written by Dr. Naweed Saeed, internal medicine resident, and reviewed by Dr. David Rodriguez, neurogastroenterologist, and Dr. Laura Marcotte, general internist. This episode was recorded and produced by Dr. Allison Lai. The Internet Work series was created by Allison Lai and is executively produced by Zara Morali, Leah Karinopoulos, and Allison Lai. Theme song by Lakshan Fazantha Mohan. As always, we have an associated infographic on our website at www.theinternetwork.com. If you like this podcast, please like and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. We hope to see you again soon.